Well, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today at New City Church. Really quickly, as I begin, I just want to reiterate what we shared a little bit earlier. Next week is our Discover New City. We do this about once a quarter here at New City Church. It's a really low-key, uh, chill environment to learn more about us. It's about an hour, and that takes place after the service. And here's what we would say. We just think you would do yourself a really big disservice to serve, to give, to get really connected here without really knowing you know, who we are as a church, what we believe, and where we are going. And so highly recommend uh, you check us out. You can sign up online. We'll have pizza and child care, or just check the Connect Card partnership on the back, drop it off the two wall on the way out, and that'll be next Sunday here in the auditorium. Um, here's what I know. Uh, there's very few things as quite as frustrating as knowing you are right about something and then nobody believes you. Like objectively, you saw something, you heard something, you read something, and nobody will believe you're right. Um, and so it's even more fun when you know someone else is right about something, and then you convince everyone else that they're actually wrong. So this happened a, a, somewhat recently, a little over a year ago. We were playing this game called Body Body. If you've never played it, it's kind of like the mafia game with cars, but it's in person. So basically, you get a group of eight, ten, whatever amount of people. You play in a really dark building or, or house, and you have a killer. And what happens, you turn all the lights off, and you have a killer. He walks around, and if you get tapped on the, sol on the shoulder... You have to sit down or lay down and you just, you're dead. And the round ends when somebody comes across the body and yells, body, body. Now, multiple people can die in a round. One person can die in a round. doesn't matter until someone calls body, body. Even the killer can call body, body if they want to confuse you. So then you get everybody in a room. If you're dead, you can't say anything, say anything. And then you deliberate on who you think the killer is. If you get it right, the game's over. If you get it wrong, the person that you all voted for is also dead. And you keep playing until the killer kills everybody or you figure it out. And so we were playing actually in this church building a little over a year ago. There's a large group of us. So we did a round where there was two killers. I happened to be one of them. And then Brian, who's the executive pastor here, he was the also one of them. And we set this up where we didn't know who the killer was. So you're hopefully like, don't kill your teammate. So I'm in the lobby and it's really dark. And I see multiple people walk into one of the big office rooms and not come out. And then a few minutes later, I see Brian walk out of the room. And as he's walking out of the room, someone else walks past him into the room and calls body body. So at this point, everyone comes and deliberates, and as soon as we turn the lights on, we come everywhere else. Emily, who goes here, many of you know her, she was the one that walked in there called Body Body. As soon as the lights get turned on, I said, it was Emily, right? And she's like really sweet, really kind, trying to rest, right? And I'm like, it's her. And she's like, no, it's Brian. Like, I saw him walked out. I was like, no, I was in the lobby the whole time. He was never in there, whatever. And so she's trying to, like, she can't win, right? And I get everybody to vote Emily off, and she died, and we, Brian and I ended up, ended up winning. It was awesome. Right? It was awesome, but really frustrating for her. And I share that because today we are kicking off a series called Misquoted. We are looking at really well-known Bible verses. Uh, you have probably heard of them, even if you're brand new to this church thing. The question is, are these verses actually saying what they appear to be saying? And today's verse comes from a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And he actually is writing this passage in this verse to combat something that pe because people do not believe what he's going to say. And so the Israelites don't believe him. And so then he writes another, another letter here that we're going to read to tell them about something else that they're still not believing him on. And so he's trying to get them to see something that they are not seeing. Now, what I want to do before we read Jeremiah 29 in the verse in particular today is I want us to give us a little bit of background about Jeremiah so we can better understand what he's actually saying. So if you're like a history nerd, this is for you. If you're not, just put on the history nerd hat for three minutes and just try your best and just pretend, okay? But it'll be really, really helpful for us to understand. So a couple of really quick things about the prophet Jeremiah. He was born around 64 or 647 BC. He was a priest uh, in a really small village uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. The ancient Israelites were kind of segregated or broken up into 12 tribes. Benjamin was one of the small 
smallest ones. Uh, He had a very difficult life, like most of the Israelite prophets did. And he preached often about the need for repentance and for Jerusalem, the capital city, to repent. And so you've got this really small, no-name priest, prophet, kind of condemning really the capital city, like it does not go well for you when you are doing that. Um, He never married, and uh, in the book of Jeremiah, one of the longest books in the Bible, he only has written two actual converts mentioned. One was Baruch, which was his scribe, and the second was this guy by the name of Ebed-Melech, who was an Ethiopian eunuch who served the king of Israel. So even his ministry wasn't what you would necessarily call successful. The book doesn't mention his death, but he probably mentioned, uh, probably died in Egypt where he was taken against his will by his own countrymen. Uh, and you can read about that in, after the fall of Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 43. So all that to say, uh, his reign, or Je- Jeremiah was the primary, primary prophesied during the reign of a guy by the name of King Josiah. King Josiah reigned from 640 to 609 BC. He was the last faithful king in Judah's history. So you had faithful kings, unfaithful kings. Josiah shows up. He's really the last faithful king before things go really bad for Israel. Um, as, Ju- uh, as Josiah is coming to the end, as he's about to die, Egypt was kind of the biggest international player at the time. And so once he dies, uh, Egypt kind of, kind of consolidates power and takes over the Israelite region. But then just four years later in 605 BC, Babylon is now the biggest international power and they kind of take over the, the Israelite region. And then the king at the time of Israel, his name was Jeho- Jehoiakim. He was able to stay in power by shifting his allegiance from Egypt to Babylon. So he essentially comes a sort of uh, a puppet king. And then in 605 BC, it's also the first time that Babylon, Babylon is taking exiles out of Jerusalem and out of Judah and kind of importing their own people into the capital city. Uh, this was, if you're familiar with Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, all that sort of thing. Daniel was part of this first group in 605 that was exiled to uh, Babylon. And so eventually Babylon takes over. So long story short, then some more things happen. And a lot of the people who are still in Israel or still in Judah are afraid because they've angered Babylon even more. And so they know that Babylon's going to come after them and probably kill some of them. So they want to flee. But before they flee, even though they'd never listened to Jeremiah, they ask Jeremiah to ask God on their behalf what they should actually do. And so Jeremiah does that and tells the remaining leaders, you actually should stay here and trust the Lord. You've never done this yet, but just trust him. They don't listen to him. And so they ask for his advice. They don't listen to it anyway. And so they go to Egypt and they make him come along with them. And so in the Egypt for the rest of his life, again, he's trying to call Israel to repentance because of its unfaithfulness. And so I, that's a lot of names. It's okay if you don't remember them. Here's really what you need to know. That during Jeremiah's lifetime, Judah and Israel ceased to be their own sovereign people. They were never under their unru- own rule again. Even in the first century, they are now over, under Roman rule when Jesus is on the scene. So they're never on their own rule again and they become exiled and ev- ruled by Babylon and eventually various others uh, throughout their time. Now, now here's why this matters, okay? And we're gonna say this every week of this series that all scripture was written to, in a specific context to specific people with specific needs. All scripture was written in a specific context to specific people with specific needs. In other words, this, the Bible is not necessarily what you and I might think of as a textbook to go and find answers to. 
Rather, it is wisdom or meditation literature that we read and try to apply to our life. And the problem that we can get into, particularly when we take these verses, is we kind of view the Bible as a textbook of like, here's a rule for all places and for all times, without realizing the people that this stuff was written to was not actually us. And the Bible doesn't speak to a lot of our issues today. It doesn't tell us how much time we should spend on our phone a day. It doesn't tell us where we should go work. It doesn't tell us if we should marry this person. And so what we do as readers of scripture, as we try to understand it as best we can, try to figure out what the original leader, uh, readers would have understood and then apply it to our situations. That's what we want to do. And so uh, today, here's the verse we're going to look at. This is a very well-known verse. Perhaps you've memorized it in a various translation. You can throw it on the screen. Jeremiah 29, 11. This is probably the preeminent coffee cup verse. And it says this. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now again, by itself, if this Bible was kind of a textbook thing where you just kind of read bullet points and then apply them universally at all times, this sounds really good, right? And how this is often conveyed in our culture today is, hey, if something bad is happening to you, here's the good news. Good will come from it. That things will actually work out in the end. And if they're not worked out for you right now, it's probably because it's not the end. Because at the end, God does not want bad, anything bad to happen to you. Or he allows bad things to happen to you. It's just your step back for your comeback, right? right? That, that, that's what this is. And so we, we read this verse and assume it must be saying that God has good plans for all of us. And when bad things happen, it's simply not the end yet. Just remain faithful because things will ultimately work out the way that you and I want them to work out. That's kind of how we read this verse, the question is, is this passage of scripture, is it actually what it's saying? Or maybe for our purposes this morning, here's what the question that we're looking at, right? What promises does God have for us? These promises and these plans in Jeremiah 29 and in Jeremiah 29, 11, what actually are they? And how actually are they supposed to play out in our lives? How do we actually know if this bad thing is part of the plan or it's just like a side thing that's going to be fixed? Like, how do we actually know what promises does God actually have for us? What are his plans that Jeremiah is writing about in this passage? That is the question for us this morning. And so we're going to read uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one around you. It'll be on page 696. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take that home. It is our gift to you. I'm going to start in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. Just read and explain these verses so that we can understand what exactly Jeremiah is saying and then try to, with wisdom and meditation, apply it to our lives. Here's what it says, Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the purpose of this letter, uh, as a side note, the book of Jeremiah is just a, is, is a random, not random, but it's various assortments of teachings and letters that Jeremiah wrote and taught that were assembled together. So Jeremiah 29 uh, was a letter written to the exiled leaders in Babylon who had been taken out side of Jerusalem that God has not yet abandoned them. That's what he's trying to tell them. Now, this was probably written around 597 uh, BC. Uh, we know that there were two kind of big uh, deportations of people from Israel. One was in 605 was the first one, and the second one was in 598. And so after this second exile, uh, the prophet Jeremiah is trying to encourage the people who have been exiled. And then here's what it says in verse 2. 
says, this was after, so he writes this letter after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisha, son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, side note, if you don't know how to pronounce a name in scripture, you read it quickly and with authority, and people think you're right. So that's what we did um, right there. Now, long story short, you don't have to know these names. This is just the context by which we know he wrote this in 597, based on these people and what certain things had happened. And verse 4, here is what the letter says. It says, the letter stated, verse 4, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives you will thrive. Now, this is not at all what you would want or expect Jeremiah to say for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, you are in exile in a hostile, non-God-fearing or honoring nation who's doing a lot of evil and wicked things. You want to leave and you would assume that God would also want to take you out of there. You would assume that God would not want you to work for the well-being of these communities that you find yourselves in. That seems really strange. That's not at all what you would assume God would tell you. So that's the first thing. You don't want to be there, and this sounds crazy. And the second reason this sounds crazy is because uh, the purpose of Jeremiah writing Jeremiah 29 is because of what happens in Jeremiah 28. That's how numbers work. Isn't that crazy? So in Jeremiah 28, there is a false prophet by the name of Hananiah who earlier in 597 uh, wrote a letter or he, he told Zedekiah, who was the king of Judah at this time, kind of like the puppet king that Babylon had put in place, uh, he, he told him that God had spoken to him and that within two years, God will restore what Babylon took from Judah and Jerusalem and the exiles will return home. So this prophet Hananiah tells King Zedekiah that in, within two years, everyone that was deported is going to come back. Now, to, to, to be fair to Hananiah, um, he probably, to be honest, had some sort of fear of Zedekiah, and he probably wanted to say what, the, what he thought the king wanted to hear. Like, if I'm just trying to assign human motives, we all, we're all a mixed bag. And I would not be surprised at all if part of this was like, well, he wants to say what this king wants him to say for various reasons. Maybe things will go well for him. And so what happens, however, is that in his fear of man and his fear of the king, he doesn't fear the Lord and is unfaithful. And so because of that, Hananiah actually dies within, the, within that same year because of his false prophecy. And so Jeremiah is now writing this letter to say the things that you had were really excited about, they're not going to happen. Like, they're not going to happen. This would be really difficult. And so one of the things, again, we are not ancient Israel's deported in Babylon from Jerusalem. That's not us. But again, because we, Scripture is wisdom or meditation literature, we can read the Scriptures and kind of understand who God is, his character, and maybe apply certain things to our lives. And so one of the things that we learn from Jeremiah 29 is this, that what God asks us to do is often not what we want to do. 
There are many, many times in our lives when God asks us, when God leads us, when God wants us to do things that you and I naturally would not want to do, right? These people and these communities that were deported uh, and were probably slaves and had really bad, horrible living conditions would not, under any circumstances, want to work for the welfare of these new communities that they find themselves in. And yet, here is where God has them for now. So he's asking them to do something that they would not naturally want to do. And as we know today in our modern cultures, as we're followers of Jesus, there are many things that scripture and Jesus asks us to do that naturally we do not want to do. But it is for our good and it is for the good of others. Now, of course, the longer you follow and walk with Jesus, hopefully the spirit works in our lives and kind of conforms our desires to him. But naturally, we don't want to be generous. We don't want to be gracious. We don't want to put other people before ourselves. We want to survive. We want to thrive. So naturally, there's a lot of things that we want to do that God does not necessarily asks us to do. And we see this here, that what God asks us to do is often not what we would want to do on our own. And he is encouraging them to do something that they would not expect, nor do they actually want to do. And then he says this, we'll continue in verse seven again. He says again, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Verse eight, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. So again, Jeremiah's purpose here is writing to them to tell them that they should not be deceived, that you are not contrary to what you want and to what you have been told going home anytime soon. Right? That's not going to happen. And so because of that, I want you to seek the good of the communities you find yourselves in and do not fall into false hope because that is not going to happen. And here's why I want you to seek the good of the communities that you're in. Verse 10, it says this, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. And will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. So again, remember how numbers work. 10 becomes before, right before 11. So whatever the promise is in Jeremiah 29, 11, whatever it is, it's going to take a place. How long? 70. Yeah. The answer is not Jesus. I know in church we think Jesus, right? The answer right here. It's 70, right? 70 years before whatever this blessing is before they're actually going to see it. Now, I don't know about you. It's like we said, it's really frustrating when you know you're right about something when no one believes you. It's also really frustrating when you have something exciting coming up that you don't get to take part in. I don't know if this happened. This happened to me a couple times. I'll give you one specific example. Uh, Years ago, Christine and I went on a cruise. So about three or four years into marriage, we went on this cruise with another couple friend. We drove all the way down to Miami. I don't know why we did that, but it was a lot of fun and we had a great time. And then a couple years after that, Christine and I were going to go on another cruise. um, And we were going this time out of the the port in Charleston. So it's a smaller port, but much closer. And so we go on this, we, we booked this cruise. We're really excited. We get on the boat. And as soon as we get on this boat, my heart just sinks. My heart sinks because although it was a different ship and it had a different name, it had the same exact layout as the first one. 
And if you've ever been on a cruise, like part of the fun is like the boat. It's different. And uh, the boat was smaller and it was one of their older ones. And so that was a big bummer. To make it worse, the, this is not an exaggeration. The entire time we were on the ship, the workers kept telling us how, so, how soon that this ship was going to be decommissioned and completely redesigned. Like we, we weren't the last people to on the ship, but we were like within the last few weeks. We were the last few weeks on, on the boat. And so, I mean, literally, like we'd be like in this like lounge area playing, um, you know, uh, trivia or something. And they'd be like, and by the way, this is going to be a completely complimentary pizza bar. And we would be somewhere else and like, by the way, this is going to be this new game station. And I'm like, I don't care. I didn't, buy a, I didn't buy a cruise for six months from now. I bought this one on this ship with these old crappy amenities. Like that's what I bought. And so just don't tell Tell me that you're going to change it. Just let me be happy in my dirtiness. Like, that's why. But the entire time, multiple people told us this, right? And it really took away from me. Like, I don't care. This is the one I'm on. I'm still working through it, right? And so, again, why is that relevant, right? Because here's what this means. So, you know what 70 years means? It means ain't none of them who are hearing this going to experience it. That's what it means. Those who are actually old enough to comprehend what's happening here, they're not going to see this happen. Like maybe a couple of them, life expectancy certainly wasn't 70 years old and you're probably at least 10, 15, 20 years old to understand what's happening. Like you are not going to see this. You're not going to see this. And so again, if we're going to apply wisdom from scripture to our lives, here's also what we can learn from Jeremiah chapter 29, that God fulfills his promises, not our assumptions. He does what he is going to do, not what we think he is going to do. And so often in life, some of our biggest frustrations with God is that we think he's going to do something or we think he's leading us to do something. And so we assume it's going to work out a certain way. And so we get frustrated with God because things don't go, not how he said they were going to go, but not how we assumed they were going to go. Here's the thing. God promised to keep and redeem his people. Like the the main point for all of this, even in Israel's unfaithfulness, is because one day there is going to become a redeemer, a Messiah from this people, out of which will be the savior for the entire world. So even when Israel was continually unfaithful, he always brought them back to himself, not because they deserved it, because he is a good and loving father. And so even though they often blew it, they knew there was all, typically there's going to be redemption for them if they would turn to the Lord and repent. And so again, our attention in our lives today as we seek to try to follow Jesus is that we often assume that if we're at A and God's leading us to do certain things and that ultimately B is going to be the result, that we kind of plot in the middle how this is going to look. And so things don't go the way we want, certain things happen, and then we get understandably, by the way, understandably, really frustrated with God, or or doubts creep into our mind, which makes total sense when life is hard. But part of our frustration is that we assume that he's going to fulfill his promises in the way that we want to fulfill them, right? And so even if you don't even know the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, again, part of our problem is reading it is that we assume, oh, good and prosperity and happiness, it, it, it means what? that I'm going to be wealthy or at least healthy. I'm not going to be in debt. My marriage is going to be good. My kids are going to be good. I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to be able to take a vacation once or twice a year in a boat that's not, you know, going to be renovated next month. Like, I'm going to, that's what we assume. But his promises are not, they, he does not fulfill our assumptions. He fulfills his promises. And ain't none of these people assuming it's going to take, like, none of them would assume, oh, if we just, like, if we're faithful, God's going to make us die here. I don't think they thought that. And yet that is essentially what is going to happen. And so all I have to say, this now leads us to Jeremiah 29, 11, And here's what it says. It says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, 
to give you a future and a hope. Now, my guess, as we read this in context, that this verse probably hits a little bit different than what we thought of before. In fact, it was really funny. Kevin, our worship leader, told me this morning that he was at a wedding last night, and uh, the officiant guy quoted Jeremiah 29, 11. He's like, oh, this is really funny. I was like, well, I don't know that I would do that at a wedding because, you know, 70 years, I don't know they're going to make it 70 years because most people aren't married that long just because they don't survive. And so I don't think uh, that's <laughs> the best place for this verse at a wedding because, you know, whatever, it's just me. Um, but here's what he, he see, right? All that say, God's promises are still true and they are still good, but your prosperity, my prosperity, in the, term, in the way that we typically think of it, that things are going to work out for us the way that we want them to work out for us, is not the reason for God's existence. It's not. And when we read this verse on its own without its context, we can assume that. Well, God exists to make me happy and to make everything go the way that I want to go. Now, part of our problem when we, when we assume these things is the context in which you and I read scripture. So for us, we live in a, a highly individualistic culture. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just a different culture than the scriptures are written in, right? They are a collective culture, community, family. That was more important than the self. And so because today the self is more important than the community, we think individually when we read scripture. What's interesting is that whenever you read the word you in scripture, it's actually always meant to be read collectively, not individualistically. Now, in the New Testament, for example, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew. The New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And in, the, in, the, in English, the Greek word that we have translated in you, well, in Greek, it's actually always collective. It's never individualistic. And so one of the best things you can do, I learned this from Tim Mackey, a Bible scholar. Uh, it was really helpful. Uh, he, one time I heard him say that anytime you read yous in scripture, you should read them. And we can get this because we're in the South as y'all. Uh, okay, so you get this. All right. So you should read them as y'all. And so when you do that, it helps you understand. Even in the New Testament, when it's talking about how God chose you and God redeemed you and God loved you, we think, oh, just me, just like special old me. When really he's not talking about you individually, he's talking about his people. And so whenever you put y'all into it, even that will help you understand a little bit differently. Like, let's just do it. Verse 29, 11, if you put it this way with y'all, it says this. For I know the plans I have for y'all. This is, we're, you know, we're in the South. Let's do this together. For I know the plans I have for This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for There you go. Yep. Y'all's well-being. Not for disaster. To give a future and a hope. Right? Even when you understand it in its collective sense, already it changes. Uh, it's not about me and what I want. It's what, what God wants for his people. And so two things we can learn from Jeremiah 29 in its, in its context. 11. Here's the first one. That God's promises are for God's people. God's promises are for God's people. So one of the problems is that we kind of apply this coffee cup verse to everyone in every situation. That it's very clearly when you understand it in its context, it is not saying this for everyone in every situation. Specifically, Jeremiah is talking about the people of God. So whatever this promise is for goodness and hope and love, whatever, it's not for people who do not belong to him. Like in our, in our case, grace, redemption, future, hope, restoration, forgiveness from God. These things that we love, these promises that we love to cling to, they are not promises for people generally. They are promises for people who have come to know the Lord. That's who they are for. Now, again, to be clear, in our case, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes that God desires that everyone would come to repentance, that he wants everyone to receive his grace and mercy and love. But it is not a blanket statement, a blanket promise for everybody. It is a promise for his people. 
that often if we want God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, we have to be honest about our posture before him. We have to be honest that we don't have everything figured out. We have to be honest that we need him to do the things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That through Christ, it's not about you doing all these things and working really hard, that we don't get God's promises without God. So these plans, whatever they are, they don't apply to people who are not followers of him. That's clear wisdom that we see from Jeremiah at 29. And the second thing we see is that God's promises for God's people are good, right? This is the wisdom that we can take from this, that his promises for his people are good. Remember, Jeremiah 29, 11, just like all scripture, was written for a specific audience in a specific context at a specific time. Like speaking to their specific struggles and things that they are wrestling with. So again, because scripture is wisdom or meditation literature, we can certainly learn from it and consider its principles. But again, it's not written at us. We are not ancient Israelites who have been deported to Babylon from Jerusalem. And so the principles that we can take from this passage is that God's plans are good, that his promises can be trusted, and they will ultimately be for our good, for God's people's good, even if there's a lot of confusion and disappointment in the meantime, right? At the end of the day, what is the gospel? That God redeems the people for himself, which means in this life, you might have a lot of things that are hard, that are difficult, that you don't understand, that are just straight up are not fair diagnoses that happen, people might lie, cheat, get fired for things you did. Like, there's a lot of difficult, bad things that happen to faithful followers of Jesus. And his promise is not in this life we will get individually whatever we want. His promise is that ultimately, for his good, he will redeem a people for himself. Again, the people in Jeremiah's case in 29 are not going to see this happen, but they can hold fast to the reality that God loves his people and will still redeem them even in difficult times. That's what we see happening, that God's promises for God's people are ultimately good, even if they don't feel like they're the type of good that we would want in this situation. And then the last part of the passage that we read this morning in verse 12, here's how it ends. It says this, you will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. In other words, what we see here is that God will restore his people. In fact, we actually know historically that this is what happened. In 536 BC, the first group of exiles began to return home. This is 70 years after 605 BC when the first exiles were taken. Right? And so one of the promises, the things that we can learn from Jeremiah 29, 11 is that God loves his people, even when they disobey him and has a plan for their good. And ultimately we see this fulfilled in Jesus, right? Who came and did for us what we did not deserve. The good news of the gospel is that God redeems, but also not how you would expect. You would not expect God to come out of his creation or out of heaven into his creation to a no-name family in a no-name town and suffer a brutal death on the cross to be publicly humiliated in front of everyone. That's not what you would assume, right? You would assume that he would send someone who, who, who heroically would take over the entire world, which is what the people in the first century thought was going to happen. When Jesus wasn't kind of gathering an army, a lot of people were like, what's actually going on with this? That the way he even redeems us is not the way that we would expect. Now, here's the good news. At the end of the day, God's kingdom will be prosperous. It will be happy. There will be no more lying, cheating, stealing, none of these things. But the path to there will may look anything like that. Like you have to imagine there's a lot of doubt 
in these 70 years for these people? Right? A lot, like, is he really going to do this? Like, it, it, like, if we really ask him, and rep- like, there's a lot of doubt for these people. But in the end, God redeems. In the end, God redeems. And this is the promise for us. For those of us that are simply honest about our need for Jesus and trust that what he has done, not what we have done or what we will do will redeem us. That in the end, even if life in this life is hard, that ultimately God will call a people to himself. And in his kingdom, there is no more lying, cheating, death, or stealing. That in his kingdom, goodness and prosperity will ultimately happen. But we are not promised that it's going to happen here and now. In fact, as we reflect on that and that God's timing is often different than our own, and not to say that he certainly doesn't or won't or can't bless us in good and healthy ways in this life. I, reflecting on this quote I heard from this pastor a little while ago, put on the screen, he put it this way. Especially if you're struggling with some difficulties in your life right now, here's what he said. 10,000 years from now, when we know what God knows, we will not accuse him of anything except that he has always been faithful. That he has always been faithful. And listen, He will be faithful, but not to our timeline, not to our ideas, not to our assumptions, not to what we think he should do, but he will be faithful to what actually needs to be done. And so this morning we asked this question, what promises does God have for us? Again, even as we read Jeremiah 29, I think we understand the better question is what promises does God have for his people? That's what is happening. What are the promises that God have for his people? If we could summarize Jeremiah 29 in its context and in its specific culture and the wisdom that we can take from it, here's what I would say. That Jeremiah 29, 11, is not a promise that we will get what we want, but it is a reminder that we will get what we need. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a promise that we will get what we want, but it is a reminder that we will get what we need. And here, some of you, part of the problem for us is that some of us have been told that if I just do X, Y, and Z, then God will come through with A, B, and C. If I do this, here's going to be the result. If I do this, here's going to be the result. And then we get really frustrated, right, when that doesn't happen the way we, are, we assume. But here's what we need to know. We are not told that it's going to do it, do it, come through in the way we assume, right? In fact, we are actually told many times in the scriptures, in the New Testament, that when we follow Jesus, it will often mean that A, B, and C won't, get, won't be what we get. That A, B, and C won't actually happen. But at the end of the day, God is faithful to our needs if we walk with him. So I'm not saying we can't look to Jeremiah 29 as encouragements or as inspiration. I'm not saying we can't do these things. Because at the end of the day, God will redeem his people. But not right now, necessarily. Not in the way that we would assume. And not always in the way that we would want. But God is faithful if we will trust and follow him.